The wisdom of experts can change your life. As a co-chair at the University of Texas, you've attained this elite status from growing and evolving over the course of your coaching career. In our Learning from Experts podcast, exclusively for the head coaches here at the University of Texas, we're going to accelerate that process. You'll hear from world-class coaches, sports psychologists, and successful people. And occasionally, it's the wisdom that impacts other areas of your life, like your health or your marriage. But here's something really important to appreciate. Timing. Hearing something at exactly the right time makes all the difference. Sometimes it's repetition. Hearing a concept multiple times until it resonates with you. So buckle up. This week's Learning from the Experts is about to begin. Hey, coaches. Welcome to the new season of Learning from Experts. As you'll see, we've changed the format to a podcast format. And the advantage of that is three things. First, each week's podcast episode shows up automatically in your phone at 5 a.m. in the podcast section of your phone. Secondly, you have access to all our prior episodes. And third, you get a Monday notification on your phone of this week's episode. But here's what I need you to do. Go into the podcast section of your phone. And in the query section, key in learning from experts, UT. Then when you see our orange logo, click to follow. Once you do that, hey, you're good to go. Let me know if you have any challenges. So we start this new season with an interview of Coach Sark. He's in his third year as our football coach here at the University of Texas. Listen for the evolution of his program over the last three years. Boy, you'll find this fascinating. Also listen for how he overcomes his own negative inner voice. Very interesting. And maybe most interesting of all is listen for his accountability system using an NFL draft format. You may want to apply this to your program. And here's the essence of what you'll learn this week. As you evolve in your coaching career by learning from the wisdom of others, you get better and better. That's Sark's lesson. That's why it's critical to make learning from others an absolute priority and maybe create a system that works for you to do that. So let's get rolling. Let's listen to Coach Sark. And remember, hey, you're living the dream. Steve, thanks for joining us today. I know all our coaches are going to really enjoy learning from you. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, John. This is fun. Steve, I, uh, I listened to an interview you did about, a, oh, I don't know, a month ago, and you talked about how proud you were about how your players have created the culture you want. W- would you just talk about that a little more? Yeah, you know, I've always, like, you, you, you take a job and you come into a new program or whatever it is. You could be an assistant coach and, you, and it's your position group or a head coach and it's your team, whatever, whatever that looks like. And you, I think we all have a, a vision of how we want it to look, right? What we want, what we want to hear the players talk about, uh, the, the leadership and, and kind of and how they step up. And so we always talk about like, I get asked about this a lot in interviews, are the players buying into your culture? Mm-hmm. And, you know, this year, I got asked that question. I said, I think our players are doing more than just buying into our culture. I think they've, they've, they've taken our culture and they've elevated it. They, they've contributed to it. They've made it even better 
than I could have envisioned it being. Um, and so that that's kind of what I was talking about in that these guys um, have bought into a point now where they're doing things outside of the cultural activities that I'm asking of them. They're, they're doing them internally and they're having those dialogues on their personal time. And to me, that's when I, you've heard me say this before, like when culture is organic, it grows how it's supposed to grow predicated on how you water it. And I think our players have watered our culture uh, in a way over the last, oh, you know, 12 to 18 months that has been really impressive. Right, right. You know, I'm, I'm sort of curious to hear your take on the, the evolution of the culture from, from year one to year two to year three. What, to, to walk, walk us through each year. Yeah, well, I think, you know, naturally in year one, I, um, you know, from my perspective, I brought uh, four coaches really with me that had worked with me. Okay. Mm-hmm. I had Coach Flood, I had Coach Banks, I had Coach Milwee, and then Coach Becton, my strength coach, had worked with me at Washington years ago as an right. assistant strength coach. But that was really it in our entire organization that had ever worked with me. So I had this whole group of people that I was trying to get them instill my ideas, thoughts, philosophy, style of play, culture, ultimately onto them to share. Then I inherited a, a returning roster full of players that didn't sign up for what I was bringing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't mean that they didn't like it. That just means that wasn't their thought process of when they decided where to go to school. And then that, then ultimately what happened too, when I got hired in January, the early signing period had already occurred in December and 18 kids had already signed scholarships or whatever it was to come to Texas. So those kids got recruited to a different culture. And so I really felt like in year one, man, I just kept having to try to, you know, just a live the life of what it, you know, try to model a life of what it was supposed to look like Two, how could I keep just coming back to the things that I knew were, just vastly important, right? I mean, the, the, the pillars of our program, which you've heard me talk a bunch about, like commitment, discipline, accountability, toughness, like, and how many times can I keep coming back to those things and point out to this is why it's important to me. Um, so that was a challenge because there were some, quite a few players that totally bought into what I brought and they believed in what we were doing and make this makes sense. And over time, as you get one, you get two. As you get two, you get three. And they started kind of, you know, coming on board and coming on board. But naturally, as that season went on and, and we had our own trials and tribulations, right? Um, you know, we went through a pretty significant losing streak in there. Right. Um, we, we hit some rough waters. And, you know, there's an old adage. I actually have it on my board behind me. Not all storms come to disrupt destruct your path Mm -hmm. some storms come to clear your path and I think we needed a lot of those storms that we had in year one because they exposed some of the warts that I had in my program right right? in that okay this we need to start removing some warts if we're ever going to change this culture to the way that we think it needs to be successful and so that kind of that coming out of year one and going into year two we tried to really 
keep that that group of guys that were really bought into what we were doing. And, and there was a there was a big group of those guys. We had to remove some that didn't. And that was okay. This wasn't going to be for everybody. What we do is not for everybody. And then I got a full recruiting class that was able to come in for year two. Year two rolled around and the culture was was there. How they they kept wanting to follow my lead. The players wanted to, you know, what, what direction is coach going in? Okay, this is direction we need to go in. What's he speaking about today? Okay, that's important. Let's talk about that today. So they wanted it, and they were buying into it. And inevitably, we were a little better in year two. When some of those, when some of those you, know, you know, adversity, some of that adversity struck, we responded a little better in year two, all right? And we, and we found a way to get through some games, we found a way to bounce back after a tough loss the week before and go win the next week. So things like that were really positive. Going into year three now, I literally feel that, you know, let, let's call it 95% of our roster totally believes in what I do and what we do and how we do. A, they're either players that have been left over that have been with me for three years now. So they didn't think this isn't for me. I'm out of here. They didn't transfer. They bought into what we were doing. And then the flip side is all of the other kids, basically, I recruited to this culture. And so when you convey the culture, this is what we're about, this is how we do it, everybody really now is on board. And now the beauty of it is um, I feel like when we have our cultural meetings and when we talk about things that are important to us, I think there's real you know, intentional listening I think it creates really intentional dialogue amongst the players and the coaches for that matter. But I also don't think they wait, they wait for my lead every time. I think they follow their own lead. Right, right. Well, you know, last year you, you told me that like in year one, and I think it was in, in November after we were in that, that losing streak, that you, you just saw that the players weren't, weren't holding each other accountable. And, and that so accountability was the big problem of – of year one and and i love that that story you you told about how you fix it in fact if you if you don't mind because it was so so good explain what you did the accountability uh draft and all that yeah so coming out of year one i said okay we we have a um accountability issue on our team right i think everybody wants to win i don't question the want to how to win is what I'm questioning, and how to hold one another accountable is what I'm is what I'm questioning. And so we did a couple different things. We we drafted accountability teams where everything we did keeping score wise for these teams was based on things that were in rel re relation to accountability, whether it was dress of the day, whether it was class attendance, whether it was being on time, whether it was meal attendance. Uh, whether it was community service, whatever, what, those types of things, right? But we did the draft like like you used to do back in the day in the schoolyard, right, when you pick teams at lunch mm -hmm. for, for basketball or football or, or whatever, right? So I picked our, our 10 team kind of commanders, and they drafted the teams. And they drafted the teams solely based on is the, are the people we're picking onto our team accountable, Mm -hmm. Not how talented they were, not how popular they were, but truly are they accountable? Can they do the things that they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it? And it was interesting because about halfway through the draft, 
we were in the team room. I said, okay, stand up if you've been picked already to a team. Everyone stood up. I said, okay, if you've been picked on a team, go ahead and leave and go across the hall to the defensive team meeting room. So they all leave. And I said to the rest of the guys who were sitting, I said, so right now, is this how I feel about you? Or is this how your peers think about you and how accountable you are? I yeah. said, so from here on out, when you, get, when you get drafted onto your team, stand up and leave the room. And inevitably, when we went through the draft, the last four or five guys, there were some four- and five-star players still sitting in that room. So it wasn't about the talent necessarily on our team. It was about the, the, the idea that were we accountable for our actions to do what we need to do to be successful. So that was the first thing that we did, and then we carried that out and had rewards for the team that won. The second thing that we did, we had a point system um, throughout winter and summer conditioning last year, and we did it again this year, where we had a, a shirt, um, a colored shirt kind of recognition for where you stood from the previous week. So we based it off of a 10-point scale. Mm-hmm. If you had a perfect week, all right, you wore, you wore a black Texas tough all day t-shirt, right? Right. If, if you missed or did something incorrectly and you lost half of a point, so between nine and nine and a half points, you wore an orange protect the team, which is one of our mantras, Texas football shirt, everything's great. If you did a couple things and you were just kind of marginal and just okay, you wore a gray generic Texas football t-shirt and you're mm-hmm. probably in around the eight range. If you fell below that, you wore a plain white Hanes t-shirt for workouts. And that's to everything all week that we do as a team. Yeah. And inevitably what happens is everybody on the team knows that what those colors mean, predicated on what you wear. Every coach knows. Every staff member knows. CDC knows when he comes out to watch the guys work out, he'll say, hey, why, why is John in, in a white t-shirt? What did he do? Right. And so everybody's very clear. And then we keep that tally for you individually. So all of a sudden, if you have a young man on the team that if we have eight weeks that we're working out, we're training in, four of them he was in a white T-shirt, three of them he was in a gray, and one week he was in an orange, he's probably not living up to the standard and the expectation of what it means to be a Longhorn football player. But it's so that everybody else can see it too, right? There's no secret. So that – Hey, when you're in the locker room in training camp complaining about playing time or why am I running with the threes and not with the ones, every player knows. No, what weren't you the same guy in the white t-shirt four weeks in the <laughs> summer? Right? And so it, it's a way to help them hold each other accountable so that they can see what's tangible from who they are and how they're performing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just think that's brilliant. Uh, any, any, any uh, new innovations on that, that, that whole idea uh, over the last year? No, you know, I just, I keep fighting for a, our numbers are a lot better. I think the players have gotten competitive with it. Right. Which is a good thing. I want them, I want them competitive. We live in a competitive world. And so we have more players kind of up in the, in the top of the chart. Uh, very uh, a lot less players at the bottom of the chart and a lot less that stay in the white. They realize they're there and they're trying to get themselves out. Now that, that we're not perfect and the law of averages say we're going to have some there. Um, but I, but I do think that nobody likes being there and they, and they understand this is real. This isn't going to change. Now last year 
it might have been, well, this is just a project coach is doing to get our attention. Now it's like, no, this is what we do in winter and summer conditioning. Right. You know, I think the power of that is is what is not said, or at least not said verbally. Don't you think? No question. question. There might be a little shame involved, I guess, but... (laughs) Uh, in the end, sometimes that's what we need, you know, because sometimes we have we have such blinders on of who we are and what we think of ourselves that the people that care for us the most, we don't appreciate how they're trying to help us to become the be- to the best of our ability of who we are as people and as players and, and whatnot. And so sometimes I have to open their eyes to these types of things um, to get their attention. Right. And, and a lot of the times, you know, once you get their attention – the behavior that follows, right? The, the, then the behavior starts to, to act in accordance to the way we know you're capable of acting and, and what you're capable of doing, whether it's on the football field, in the classroom, or in life. Right. Well, you know, the beauty of it is, is the kid can't go, well, coach doesn't like me. <laughs> no, no. These are your peers that are yeah. uh, uh, d- doing this. So, yeah, it's brilliant. You know, the a few draft, years ago. The, the draft – the draft really makes that very clear as well. Yeah, yeah, you know, no kidding. That makes that very clear. Well, I'm not picking the teams. That Your teammates are picking the teams. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, a few years ago uh, when Augie Garrido was alive, you know, I talked to him about how long it really takes to, to put in a culture, and he basically said five years. Do you think that's true? Um, you know, in our world – I think back in the day, maybe, but our our roster turnover is a little bit different. I would I would probably say to be fully immersed in the culture and what we want. I would say in year four to be right. completely immersed, right? Um, because that means everybody that's on your team chose to be part of your culture. Mm-hmm. You you didn't inherit, right? Right. But, they, they truly, the, I want to be part of that. Right. And that doesn't mean they're all perfect and they all do everything right. I'm just saying at least you know where the intent was. Um, you know, naturally, I'm in year three. I still have I still have players that were here before I got here. Yeah. And a lot of them are great. I mean, you think about Jordan Whittington or Jalen Ford. Um, a, lot of, a lot of these guys are fantastic. Jaron Thompson's of the world. Um but this isn't what they signed up for when they decided to come to the University of Texas. You know, they, it, was a, it was a different culture. And there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. We believe in what we do. And I give these guys a lot of credit that are still on our team um, because they didn't transfer. They didn't go somewhere else. Um, and so that's why I would say it's probably a little less than five years now because of the, you can turn the roster over a little easier as far as players now have the freedom to transfer you have the ability to sign more players to get on your team that buy into what you do. So um, I feel awesome about where we're at right now. I, I'm, like I said, I'm blown away with what our guys have, have gotten this thing to because they, they've taken it to a place I didn't know we could get to this quickly. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it certainly feels that way. And I, I see what, you, what you're saying, you know, like, like on the uh, accountability draft, you know, the first year, they're, they're like, well, okay, this maybe this is coach's idea for the year. But then the second year, they're like, oh, this is part of the culture, you know, and it just gets deeper and deeper embedded in, in the players, right? It really does. And what's interesting, so we have a leadership committee uh, on the team. And 
it's generally made up of your kind of more of your upper type classmen, you know, seniors, juniors, sometimes, you know, there may be a sophomore maybe in there. Um, and, and they're the guys that do things the right way that represent the team the right way that, that, that we, you know, that it's not a sometime thing. It's an all the time thing of how they go about their business. And we try to get some representation of just about every position group. Um, and in the end, I, try, I meet with those guys, you know, periodically. It's not like we have a standing meeting every week at a certain right. time. But I like to run issues by them and things that come up. But what they've done, they meet on their own now every Friday as a, as a, as a, as a leadership committee in the summer. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask them to do that. They're doing that on their own. And so to me, that, that's just a little simple sign of, man, these guys are really buying into – uh, you know, beyond buying into they're they're taking what I thought was man here's our leadership committee here's how we're going to do it they've contributed to it and then elevated it to to it being something different and above and beyond of whatever my expectation of it was going to be right right well and you know I see that that in your case it, it seems like you're able to build that culture because you excel at, at transparency and being vulnerable yourself and, and really having real honest relationships with the players. Um, and w- would you explain how you evaluate the players every two times a year? Yeah. So at the end of, um, at the end of the regular season in, in the, in the fall, uh, and then again, after, at the end of spring, after spring practice, I meet with every player on our team individually. Um, I always a lot for about a 15, 20 minute meeting. Some of them are five to 10 minutes. Some of them may take 30, but in, in a nutshell, it's about a 15, 20 minute meeting. And we have a form that we fill out prior to that meeting. And that form is filled out by their position coach and their position coach, you know, has a, has things he needs to answer player strengths, player weaknesses, um, things to work on. It's filled out by our strength and conditioning coach, Coach Becton. You know, strengths, weaknesses, things to work on. It's filled out by our trainer, Donald Wynn, and, and goes through of how he's doing in, in the training room. It's filled out by their academic advisor. It has all of their academic information on there. And then I fill it out, and I talk about it. And it kind of gives me a snapshot of where they're at in our program today and what do they need to do moving forward to enhance their opportunity to be even better than they are today for tomorrow? And so when, when I meet with each player and I go through it, a lot of the times I ask the question, so what do you think your strengths are? And then I'll say, okay, well, here's what your position coach, the strength coach, and myself think. Well, what do you think you need to work on? Well, here's, here's where it is, all right? How are you doing in school? I'm doing great. Well, your academic advisor says, you know, so it, 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 it gives them a sense of, man, here's the reality of the situation. Now, what are we going to do about it? And then it is hopefully it serves as motivation for them coming out of the season in the fall to get ready for winter conditioning and spring ball. All right. Here's what coach wants me to work on. Okay. Coming out of spring ball. Here's where you're at. Here's what we need you to work on. Okay, so here I go into summer. This is what I need to work on. I may need to work on my on my social life, my personal life. I may be having too much fun, right? <laughs> I, it may be I need to I, I need to get more balance in my life. That that 
Um, you know, my academics are, 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 are not great. I'm doing well on the field, but because my social life is what it is, I'm struggling academically or whatever. It may be rehab. It may be, you know, to, to, you know, coming off of an injury. There's a million things, right? But it gives every player on our team a chance to at least meet with me twice a year and have a real understanding of where he stands in our eyes and then what he can do to work on that to either, like I said, enhance kind of his his status of, of where he's at in our eyes or B, fix it and, and, right. and get it to a spot to where, you know, he our ideas of him match up with where his ideas of himself are. Right, right. You know, I tell you, one thing I see, Steve, at least with me, is in leadership, and I struggle with this a little bit, is I see that you influence them more by asking them questions than than telling them. You know, I, I naturally want to tell them, you need to do this, you need to, well, do, you, do you suffer from that a little, or, or are you good at asking them questions? Um, I think both. Uh, right. I think when my, when I'm, when I'm in a, when I'm in a, I feel like I've got time and space and energy. My patience is very good. And I, I tend to ask more um, when I feel like I'm up against it because of a, either time management or something that has occurred that has kind of lit my fuse. Yeah. I'm, I get right into telling and I, and I don't always love that, but I will say, I think it's needed. I, I don't think it can be asked all the time. What is your opinion? I think sometimes, especially in our sport, they need to be told. And not, yeah. not not in a demeaning way. I'm not I'm not meaning demeaning at all, but in a way that they need to know hey, this is what coach is expecting of me. Yeah, yeah. Period. No, I think that's that's a very good point. Uh, you know, being self aware to um, to sometimes it is you got to tell them, and sometimes it's no, you got to maybe ask them questions so they discover it on their own. But it's a challenge in leadership, isn't it? For sure, for sure. Yeah. But that's one of the. It's one of the best parts of what we get to do. You know, it's, it's, you know, in our world, I've got 120 sons that I stand up in front of <laughs> every, every day. Right. And how do you push all of the right buttons at the right time to, to get them to keep moving in the same direction and, and kind of rowing that boat in the same direction for, for the team success, which ultimately then kind of provokes the, the individual accolades and, and rewards afterwards. Right, right. You know, a while back you were telling me about uh, an article you read from Michael Gervais where, where grit is, is mentally tough people with the foundation of optimism at the center. You know, that's an interesting idea. Would you explain that to the coaches? Yeah. <laughs> I know we were going here. I love this. This is great. So, like, I think to have grit, a, we all know, like, the first, grit to me, I always paint a visual, like, man, here's somebody that will stand tall and has the utmost resolve and will overcome no matter what the obstacle, right? But I think the people with the best grit are the ones that know on the other side of this obstacle is, a, is the reward, right, is something that is, is really satisfying, that there's this idea of optimism that, that yes, it is going to be hard. But I know I know I can do it, and when I do, it's going to be so great because of X, Y, or Z. But I do think you have to have optimism to be gritty. If not, you're just tough. 
Right. right. Yeah. You're just tough and, and tough is fine. You can survive and we all can live in survival mode and, and be tough enough to do it. But I think grit is different than tough because I think with grit, you have the sense of optimism that we can accomplish this. And when we do, it is going to be really special. Right. You know, I, I don't know if you experienced this in your life, but, you know, I remember in my 30s and 40s, you know, I wasn't sure it was all going to work out. You know, I was, I was working harder than all my friends, but I didn't fundamentally have the belief that it was all destined to, to work out. And I suspect a lot of people are that way. What about you in your life when you were younger? Did, did you question whether all this was going to work out? I was never good enough in my eyes. I, I thought to myself, man, I got no chance. I right. Had, and like, I, I busted my butt, but I was never the most physically gifted guy. Um, right. I never felt like I was the smartest guy in the room in class. I never felt like I was the one that was witty enough with the girls. I never, I always, right. I always second guessed myself along the way. And, but I always like to fantasize about what it could be like if we won the championship. Right. What it could feel like if I did throw that touchdown pass. What it would feel like if I gave the commencement speech at graduation. Right. So I, I would I would definitely fantasize about that. But then when it came to reality, I always lowered my own expectations because I didn't want to fail. Yeah. Uh, I told myself that 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 was what was going to happen. And it's kind of that self fulfilling prophecy. But but in reality, is I kept having to just be brave. And somebody asked me this: if you could go back and tell yourself. Any the, the 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old self, Steve Sarkeesian, what would you tell him? Be brave. Yeah. Right? Because sometimes we put we put false ceilings on ourselves of what we're capable of. And just because we don't have success right away at something, which is hard in today's society because we live in this world of instant gratification. It's like, yeah. well, I didn't do it right the first time. I'm no good at it. No, sometimes there's this thing called perseverance and hard work. And through that, there becomes even a, a better sense of gratification because you know the work that you put in to make it happen. And so, um, you know, I really thank my father for that. He, he's a hardworking man, and, and I watched him. And so I just kind of kept to work, you know, and kept working and kept grinding. I will say life is about opportunity. And I think that I maximized the opportunities that were, that were kind of presented to me. Um, but by doing that, that was because I was prepared for the opportunities when they were presented. Right. So, you know, sometimes in life, as we go through our twenties and our thirties, um, we don't realize what we think our potential is, but that might just be because we didn't get the right opportunity yet. Yeah. That doesn't mean that, that we weren't quite good enough and that other people were better around us. It just might not have been the right opportunity presented for us to take advantage of. And then once it did, in your case or in my case or whatever, man, that was the springboard to, to incredible success. Well, you know, I, I've gotten to the point, and I, I bet you're that at this point too, where I'm like, you know, things, things are going to work out. They just work out for the best. I may not like it at the moment, but, and I see the power of, of teaching young people the idea that, you got to have an intelligent plan and you got to do your best. And, and of course, all of them sort of agree with that conceptually, but, but they don't really know what an intelligent plan is. And they don't necessarily really know what 
doing your best is. And, and you know, like an intelligent plan for some of your players, you know, the, some of them just think they're going to play in the NFL and that's the only plan. Well, that's not an intelligent, that's a plan, but it's not an intelligent plan. But you do, you, you agree with that idea that, that if you, if you have an intelligent plan and you do your best, God is going to make it work out. Just, you got to have that belief that that's going to happen. Do you buy, you buy that? I do. You know, we, we talk about it a lot, right? We all dream of what we want. Mm-hmm. A plan makes a dream become a goal. Mm-hmm. It, it, now it can be something that can be attainable. Um, but like I tell the players all the time, it's no different than going into a game. Contingency planning is as critical as the main plan. Mm-hmm. Right? Because I may go into a game and, and we're going to play our opponent and they're a big – cover two zone defense team. And we've got this great game plan to go attack cover two. And we come out and they're blitzing from everywhere and they're playing man-to-man coverage. Well, if I don't adjust our plan at that moment, we will get beat. And we'll, and, and, and that's no different in life. And so we, we contingency plan going into every game of here's the main game plan and then here's the, the, the subsequent contingency plans if they do this. And right. I think it's no different, man. If, if we go through life one track mind and this is all it is and this is what it, and when that roadblock comes for that one plan and I have nowhere else to go, what else do I have? And so yeah. we, we, we try to contingency plan and, and help our players to understand that. Right. Do you, do you think uh, most players have a negative inner voice? Yes. I think somewhere in there, it's in there. And it's louder than the positive voice for sure. Yeah. You know, I tell you, I see it a lot in, in the entrepreneurs and, and students I, I coach. And I'm like, man, you know, life is hard enough without you piling on you, you know. And, and it's, I guess, a challenge for, for all of us to, as a coach, to, to get rid of that, that negative inner voice, right? I think it's it's such a fine line, too, because I think sometimes some of the negative voice that we have, at least for myself, it serves as as almost motivation to prove myself wrong. And I don't don't think there's anything wrong with that. That When you challenge yourself, uh, I think there's something to be said for that. But when when you inhibit yourself from being the best that you can be, that's where the problem lies, right? That you don't give forth the effort that's needed. You don't do the things that are necessary. And then you don't do things with the confidence and exude the confidence that makes you, let's call it attractive for that matter of, of because of what you're truly capable of being. And so we gain that confidence and we gain that positivity through the successes that we have. And so I always try like with our players, for example, especially early on in their career. I'm really trying to figure out and find the things that they do well. Mm -hmm. And then I try to put them in position on the field to do the things that they do well so that it serves as motivation for them to want to do more things well. So I always say I have a bucket over here of the things that you do well. I've got this other bucket over here of things that you don't do so well right now. But when you go in, I'm going to do the things that you do well while we keep working on the things that you don't. But hopefully through some success, 
They're like, I want more from that other bucket so I can play more. I like playing. And I don't want to be embarrassed in front of 105,000 people at DKR. So right. the more I can do really well, the better opportunity I have for success. And so um, we try to get them early in their career, especially to focus on the successes they have rather than to focus on all the other things that they don't do well. Because I am a believer of, man, the, the, when you focus on good things in your life, it's, it's amazing how more good things find you, right? right. More positivity and more, more positive things in your life find you. When you focus on the negative junk in your life and in your world, more negative and junk will reveal itself to you. And so we try to keep things positive. That doesn't mean that we don't work on the things that we need to work on, but we do definitely try to keep things positive and upbeat in, 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 a, in a mind frame of, man, let's focus on the things that we're good at. Right. Right. You know, I want to share something with you that I learned from Lincoln Riley that I think you'll find fascinating. So as, as you know, I've been good friends with Tim Kite, who, yeah. who for the coaches that don't know who Tim Kite is, he was the mental coach for Ohio State when uh, Urban Myers won the national championship. And, and just this past year or so, he went to USC when Lincoln Riley took over the program. And so I'm a big fan of uh, Tim's because he really has a, a system for coaching the mental side of the game. And anyway, so I go and see him and spend a couple of days in Hilton Head this like a month or two ago. And and so I'm, I'm talking to him. I said, now, why did Lincoln Riley, when he took over the USC program, bring you in? Because, you know, he wasn't working really directly with the Oklahoma program before he took the USC job. And he said, you know, the reason he brought me in is because Lincoln saw that when he was at Oklahoma, he could never get the players to fully buy into the culture to the level that he wanted them to unless he had a system. And he got sort of got exposed through the assistant coaches to Tim in at Oklahoma. But when he went into USC and he saw how screwed up the mental approach to, to the game the players had. That's why he, he brought them in. And so I, I, I share that with you. What, what's your take on, on that? It sounds like you're totally pleased with how they're buying into it. Any, any thoughts on what Lincoln Riley said? No, I, I do. I, I agree with him. You know, I think fortunately for me, um, you know, eight years of Pete Carroll mm -hmm. was very big for, for Coach Carroll. And there was definitely a process and a methodology to what we did and how we did and why we did what we did. And I believed in a lot of it. And a lot of it was, was true to me as I thought. But yet, as I grew older, I come to find out it wasn't all totally true to me. There was a lot that was. But then I got exposed to a whole other culture with Nick Saban at Alabama. Yeah. yeah. And that's when it hit me that, hey, I had to figure out exactly who I was and what I truly believed in, not what somebody else that I admired believed in, but what mm. did I truly believe in? Because I do believe that every team takes on the personality of the head coach. Yeah. The things that you make important, the team will make important. You get what you emphasize. If you're consistent in your approach to something and you and you have a, a methodology to what you do, 
you'll have consistency in your program. If one day you're hot, the next day you're cold, one day you're happy, the next day you're angry, your team is going to be an emotional roller coaster too. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the day, I saw this total level of consistency with Pete Carroll, who he was on a daily basis. And that's what our team was. I saw a whole different culture over here with Nick Saban in Alabama, but I saw a level of consistency of Nick Saban of who he was every single day. And it got to me to think when I get my next opportunity, if I do, so happens to be at the university of Texas, I know who Steve Sarkeesian is and the level of consistency in which I approach every single day is going to be just that. And as we go to instill our culture into that program, they're not going to wonder who's Coach Sark today. They're right. going to know exactly who I am. And then ultimately that that then permeates throughout your, your building and your locker room and, and your team um, to, to generate the culture, hopefully, of, that you're looking for. And so that's always the hard part, you know, John, because I know there's so many great, like yourself, there's so many great speakers and experts and people that are much more knowledgeable at this kind of stuff than I am. Um, but at the end of the day, especially early on in my time here, and you talked about being transparent and honest and authentic, I felt like that's exactly what our team needed. And so I was, I was always a little hesitant to bring in people to talk to our guys because I wanted them to keep hearing from me. Yeah, This wasn't somebody else's thought. This wasn't somebody else's idea. This is exactly what Coach Sark believes in, and he lives it. And that to me was probably more important than bringing in an expert to talk to the guys, to, to have them, have them figure it all out. Yeah. You know, that, that's what Tim Kite was telling me also is that Lincoln Riley said, there's no point in bringing other people in. I mean, it's almost, uh, even though the message might be good, uh, if you're to give them too many messages, it just confuses your message. Right. Right. And then, and then the players don't know, well, wait a minute. Who, which one is more important? Right, right. Was yeah. it the speaker from last Wednesday or the speaker <laughs> from, from this Wednesday? But if I'm the speaker every Wednesday for Culture Wednesday, well, then clearly, you know, we know the level of consistency. And that doesn't, like I said, that doesn't mean that we don't bring in, because there's a lot of people, stuff that I believe in. I believe in John Gordon. I believe in the power of love. I believe in, you know, the, the power of positive energy and the way he talks about leadership. Mm-hmm. But I speak that language because I've been reading his stuff for almost two decades now. And so yeah. the, the point of it is like some of the people that we do bring in, um, I think only supports and enhances what we, what we really believe in. And that's, I think that's a real responsibility of a, of a head coach because not every person you bring in is going to be totally aligned with what you believe in. And if you don't believe in it, the players will see it and they'll read through it. They can read BS in a heartbeat, right? right. They know what it looks like. So um, I, think, I think that's obviously one of the challenges as well of, of knowing your speakers when you bring those guys in. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm curious, when a, when a player fails to perform, uh, like when an offensive lineman, let's say, gives up a sack, is it usually caused by the player not playing the technique properly? Um, I think there's, there's a couple things in there. I think technique is, a, is an issue. Um, I also think that trusting is an issue. And trusting could be trusting the information that you saw from the defense of, of 
the, the mm-hmm. alignment, trusting that what your coach told you he would do on how he would try to beat you, that he actually did that. Trusting the call from the lineman next to you of this is how we're going to block it, right? There's, there's trust, and with trust is belief, and that's how you can go cut it loose. But you definitely you need, you need the, the physical ability to do it, and then you need the fundamentals and techniques to execute it all in the end. Right. You know, I was fascinated with, with Tim Kite telling me how they basically train technique and, and using how to sort of rewire a, a player's autopilot and, and also how they use video to, to reinforce in a player's autopilot how that technique should be played so that it happens automatically. But I was just curious as, as to when they don't perform, is it technique? And it sounds like it. sometimes it is and sometimes it's just that belief, right? Yeah, and, and sometimes because of, the, because of uh, some other factor, whether it's the, the trust and belief that you can block the man across from you, your technique gets thrown out the window. Or for the other reasons I just mentioned, that, that all of a sudden your technique failed you but why did the technique fail you? That's what we try to drill down into so that we can fix it for next time. You know, that we know you're more than capable or we wouldn't have you out there. You've proven to have the, the, the ability to use the proper technique. Why did it fail you in this instance? What were the issues? And then how are we going to you know, manage it so that that doesn't occur again? But, but wouldn't that be just a function that he didn't play the, the technique properly? I mean, if you, yes, you never get beat if you play the technique exactly right, right? That's exactly right. And so we're trying to go below that. We're trying to drill down deeper of why didn't you use the proper technique? Yeah. Right? Yeah. What was it in that play that caused you to not use the proper technique? It could be physical fatigue. Yeah. It could be, it could be mental fatigue. It could be self-doubt, right, in who you're trying to block. It could be trust in the guy next to you of what he's what call he's making to so inevitably somewhere in there I get clouded information that in turn my technique is poor it may just be that you haven't put forth the work in practice and your technique's not very good anyway right right and you just have to be out there because we got nobody else well that's an easy reason of why did your technique fail you but that's what we try to drill down into is why did it fail you and then how do we how do we make sure that doesn't happen again? Right, right. You know, I I know one one thing that all of our coaches do is is they hold themselves to to doing their best because they can't hold themselves to attaining a national championship or a, a given record, but they can hold themselves to doing their best. And I know in my life, one of the things I saw in my thirties and forties is my vision of doing my best was so simplistic in that that in that I thought all that meant was really effort, you know, getting up early, like at 5.30 every morning. <laughs> and when I, when I got a little older, I'm like, wow, that is such an unenlightened view of <laughs> doing your best. How is, how is your vision of doing your best evolved as you've gotten older? Well, I think balance is probably one of the keys, you know. I mean, I, I used to be the – just this X's and O's guy when I got into this. It was about scheme. It was about being a really good fundamental coach. And then I started diving into this thing about culture. Oh, man, culture really matters. And then it's, well, all right, now I got the culture piece. Then it's, well, how, how about 
pouring into other people, right? And how do you pour into other people so that they can pour into the next person? Then you create and generate this, this atmosphere of love and appreciation and empathy for one another. Um, so you just, you kind of keep drilling down into, all right, what is, what is the next level who you are and what you're about? And in the end, like I, I use an adage around here, excellence is exhausting. It, yeah. it, it really is. You know, I mean, if you want to be excellent at whatever you do, you truly have to exhaust yourself. And, and, I, and I think now here at the University of Texas, we have, in my opinion, the best head coaches in the world and definitely in, in the United States at, at every sport. And I'm, I'm amazed by what they are able to do with their teams and the accomplishments that they have. But that's inspiring, too. Right. And that, right. that goes right back to, you know, exhausting myself. Like, what does that feel like? What does it feel like when you lay down at bed at night and everyone's like, man, how do you sleep? You know, you must be thinking, I said, I sleep like a baby. Cause by the time the end of the day comes, I know there's nothing else I could have done today to get ready for tomorrow or the next day or the next day. And tomorrow there'll be new challenges tomorrow. There may be challenges from today that I put on hold that I'll get to but I know I exhausted myself today to try to be excellent and then I'll do it again tomorrow. And hopefully we create an, an atmosphere and an environment and a culture here where people appreciate the, the, the effort put in to be excellent. Right. And that, and that hopefully motivates them to want to try to do the same. Right. Well, I see that, you know, doing, doing your best is, is for all of us, is just an evolution of who you are as a person. And, and, you know, as I got a little older, I realized, oh, it's, it's way more than effort. It's, it's, uh, you know, evolving myself with personal growth and learning from the wisdom of experts. And, and, and it's also tuning into reality, not, not just letting, you know, my myopic view of how things need to work and actually seeing what, what is reality telling me? Do I need to learn from reality and, and, and being self-aware? So I see that it's, it's just that combination that we all go through of just, just maturing and getting smarter as we get older. Right. Yeah. And, and not, you know, you mentioned it, but not being stubborn. It's yeah. okay. It's okay to admit I made a mistake or that is a better way. You're right. And then, and then giving praise when you, when you do make that adjustment and you get that information from somebody else to praise them too, right. For, right. for, for helping you and supporting you. And um, I, I think so many times, like when I was a young head coach, man, it was about me and my yeah. ego and who I was. And now it's more about we and supporting and because the better all everybody else in this building does, the better we're going to be. It's not going to be just because of what I did and how I did it. And um, whatever that looks like to motivate them and to, and to keep building them up in a way that they're doing a good job and here's how, then that was a great idea. You know what? That was a good idea. How about, did you try it this way? Um, or you know what? I didn't like that decision you made here. This is how we're going to do it. There's a lot of ways to get to it. But ultimately, we have to have some humility as head coaches, too. Yeah. Give praise when, when praise is needed. Yeah. Yeah. That's the power of getting older is, is humility. No question. I would have done that a decade ago. I promise you. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Me neither. You know, how is the sport of football evolving based on, you know, how is offense evolving? How is defense evolving? And is the evolution always 
driven by what's happening in the NFL? I don't know that. You know, I, I feel like nowadays, especially you watch more NFL teams, they look a little bit more like some college offenses and, and things. Um, you know, I think the evolution of the game, a lot of what it is, is the, the quarterback play has, has, has changed. You know, the quarterbacks are a lot more mobile players now. The offenses are, are playing to their strengths. Uh, the quarterbacks can run, they can throw, they can throw on the move. Um, there's a lot of run pass options where the quarterback is deciding those types of things. Uh, defenses have evolved some to where um, they're playing a lot more combination. They're blitzing, but yet still only rushing four people and playing more zone to get in windows to, to take away those RPO throws. Um, but the basis of football hasn't changed. That That's the thing, right? You, the line of scrimmage matters in football. You, you win and lose football games at the line of scrimmage. The quarterback is the most important position in sports. That hasn't changed over decades upon decades. All right. Um, you, you have to have playmakers in space that, 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 that can make plays when, when either the ball is in their hands or that they can get the ball on the ground. They can tackle it. Um, and in the end, you can go back to, to the best, the greatest teams of all time. It's about players, not plays. Yeah. I yeah. keep reminding myself that, that uh, sometimes it's not always calling what I think is going to be the perfect play. It's making sure that I call a play where my best players can have an opportunity to, to go make those plays for us. And so right. uh, there's a fine line in that as well. You know, it's going to be uh, great to watch Quinn Ewers this year and, and what a difference it should make uh, having a year under his belt. And I'm, I'm just curious, you know, two things I saw with Quinn last year, for, at least from the outsider looking in, is it seemed like he was hesitant to, to make plays with his, his feet. And, you know, like we watched the TCU quarterback, it seemed like every time they had third down, he's making a play with his feet. What's, what's your philosophy about that? And does he have the ability to make plays with his feet? Yeah, I, I think a couple of things. We are not, and this is, I want to make sure I say it clearly because it can get, sometimes it gets a little, little jammed up. We are not a quarterback run offense. And what I mean by that is I don't call direct quarterback runs, meaning mm -hmm. quarterback power, quarterback sweep. We don't do that. But we recruit quarterbacks that have the ability to use their legs in specific instances like third down, like the red zone, um, when they can get themselves out of a jam with, the, with their escapability with their legs. I think Patrick Mahomes is a great example mm -hmm. of that. He uses his legs when he needs it. But Andy Reid does not call run plays for, right. for Patrick Mahomes. And Quinn definitely has the ability to do that. We saw it some last year. He had a really big scramble against Oklahoma on third down. Um, so we, we've seen that in him. Um, I think we're going to see more of it because ultimately he's got himself in better shape. I think he's more confident in his ability. He's running faster than he ever has. Um, and so I think you're, we're going to see him utilize his legs more, whether it's to buy time to still throw the ball or use his legs to actually run to, uh, to, to create first downs and touchdowns. Right. And I noticed last year it seemed like uh, sometimes he would be throwing off his, his back foot and the mechanics seemed to be off, and that was particularly a problem if, if we were playing in a, on a windy day. Did I see that correctly, or 
were his mechanics always strong? What, what's your well, take on that? Yeah, no, I, I think kind of twofold. I, I think one, Quinn is very physically gifted and has tremendous arm talent. And he has the ability to make throws from multiple arm angles and delivery points. But it's, 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 at times that's a gift and a curse. Because when you feel like you can get away with that, then your mechanics can start to to fail you and your footwork can fail you. And now when there are some other extraneous factors like the wind or different things or tighter coverage by a DB, now you can be exposed because if the pass isn't perfect, you, yeah. you, you're, you're leaving your, your margin for error is smaller. And so we're trying to impress upon him to – Hey, you've got unbelievable arm talent. You've God has gifted you with something very unique. Um, but that doesn't mean we have to rely on just that to be a really successful quarterback. And fundamentals and techniques still matter. Right. This has been great, Steve. And I know our, our fellow coaches have gotten a ton out of this. So we're going to have a great year. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. I, I'm very excited. Um, I, I, I'm excited for our team. You know, when you, when you watch your team put in the work, um, you look forward to to them going out and taking that next step in the process, which is actually putting that on the field and, and what that can look like. So um, I'm looking forward and, and excited for them. Wow, that was enlightening. I hope you found it interesting and beneficial to you. So let me share with you three ideas from this interview for you to think about. Over the last eight years or so, I've watched the transition of our football team from the Mac Brown years. And in my opinion, Coach Sark is head and shoulders above his predecessors. He just has this calm demeanor that exudes confidence and his transparency, humility, and maturity absolutely assures his success here at the University of Texas. Don't you agree? Think about your demeanor. Are you projecting what you want to project? The second thing that really caught my attention was Sark's three-year journey here at the University of Texas, where the first year he saw during their losing streak that the players just weren't holding each other accountable and didn't know how to win. Then in their second year, they were buying in, but following Coach Sark's lead. Now, in the third year, the players themselves are actually leading. That's when the magic happens. I found this accountability system using an NFL draft format innovative. I bet you did too, right? The power of this system is it conveys to each player what their peers think of them regarding following the system and living the culture. So how is the accountability in your program? Does it make sense to hold an NFL accountability draft like Sark did? And here's the final thing that caught my attention. It's how Coach Sark is a combination of Pete Carroll and Nick Saban. But boy, he's his own man. And the lesson he learned is that when you study under great coaches, you take what you like, but you don't take things that aren't true to you. You have to be genuine and true to yourself in implementing your culture. And above all else, you have to be consistent. Who are the great coaches that shaped you? And what concepts did you learn from them that you've made your own? Coaches, have a great week, and we'll see you next week on the Learning from Experts podcast. And if you will, 
Remember to set up your phone to follow our podcast each week. Now let me know if you have any challenges doing that.